It's really true, isn't it, God? There is none like you, for you alone are the author of life, the creator of all. Each of us is breathing this moment because of you. So why don't you thank him right where you're sitting or standing for that last breath that you just took and the millions of breaths that you've taken before that. Why don't you thank him that he made your body so amazingly that when you breathe in that air, he distributes it all over your body, keeping every cell alive. Why don't you thank him for every heartbeat? For he's the one who has been keeping my heart and yours beating. God, we've come into this place on this day to praise you. We've been lifting our voices, our minds, and our hearts and truth about you and about us to you in praise. We've come to this place to enter into conversation with you. That's what we're doing right now. You, my friends, you've got the undivided attention of God. Talk to him right where you stand. He knows all about whatever's going on in your life. He loves you profoundly. Why don't you invite him to, to do a fresh new work in your life? And God, we've come into this place to open your word and to hear you speak to us because you're the only one who knows what we need. You're the only one who knows what next week and next month and next year is going to bring into our lives. So we open our hearts and our minds and we ask you, would you please touch us right at the point where you know we need your touch? And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And I invite you to be seated, my dear friends, in the presence of a God who loves you, an almighty God who loves you. I love the picture that you see on the screen in part because I love oceans and shorelines but in part because of the powerful message that it gives to you and to me. We'll dismiss the children in just a minute. I want them to see something. You see what I wrote for you on the front of your worship folder this morning? I always write a couple of sentences to help set the tone for us, to help you prepare your heart for what I hope God does in your life and mine. My legacy, that's you and me and every person, is shaped by the pattern of choices, attitudes, words, actions, etc. of my life. All of these flow out of my heart. They are a genuine reflection of the relationship that I have with God or don't have with God. What does my legacy tell you about my heart and my relationship with Jesus? What does your legacy tell me and everybody who knows you about your heart and your relationship with Jesus? Watch this. You saw it last week. I very rarely repeat something that I showed you, but this is so powerful. I want to invite you to see it for a second time. Please watch this. We're all handed down something. It's not like they started with these. They were handed down to them. And probably their daddies didn't know any better. 
I'm not even sure if they knew what they were doing. Maybe so. But maybe not. It's hard to tell. that's true and so if you had to pick just one word if we were to distribute a card to every person in this room and a marker and you pick just one word that you would like to write on your piece of paper that would describe the legacy that you want to pass to your children regardless of what has been passed to you what would the one word be for you And how much difference has Jesus Christ made in helping you decide that's the word that you want to define your legacy? Have you ever seen a person who just looks like they're radiant? Maybe a bride on her wedding day. Yeah? Or maybe a, a beaming daddy holding his brand new baby fresh out of the, well, you know, <laughs> fresh born. You ever been to an airport or a train station? And you can just tell that there's somebody there who hasn't seen a loved one for a long time. And they're making sure that they're near the front of the crowd. And they're watching as the passengers are coming down. And then they see them. And their eyes get real big. Their hair almost stands up, right? They're radiant. Did you know that there's a verse in the Bible that tells us that there was a person once, just like you and me, a normal guy, but he was radiant. We, we've been following the story of Moses. Moses is the guy I'm talking about. And in Exodus chapter 34, verse 29, it says this. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, 
with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had been speaking with the Lord God up the mountain. How does that happen? A person, their life is changed so much that they actually become radiant. You may remember if you were with us last week and you've been following the journey, we left Moses and the people last week as Moses was crying out to God and saying, God, please don't send us from this place unless you go with us. Because, and I see it there in the 33rd chapter, I'm looking at the 16th verse, how will anyone know that you are pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? And what else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Right after that, Moses says something that's remarkable. Verse 18. God, show me your glory. Moses had seen God do amazing miracles that demonstrated his glory and his power. Moses and the people had actually heard the audible voice of God speak what we know as the Ten Commandments. And I forgot to dismiss the children, didn't I? <laughs> so I'll do it now. If you're here in the room, little ones up through grade four. Thank you for your patience, and thank you, Mom, for reminding me. And let me just tell you, <clears throat> you may not know, but we have a security team in the church. There's about six or seven active-duty police officers who are a part of our church. And over the last several months, they have, with others, formed what we call a security team. And so you may notice some folks walking around with little earbuds stuck in their ears from time to time. There's one in this room right now. And their purpose is to help keep us safe. They're walking around the building at all times when there's people in this building, Saturdays, Sundays, and Wednesdays, especially when we have large numbers of people like now. They're especially walking around where your children are, making sure that your kids are safe in the nursery and in their classrooms. And they're keeping an eye on the weather. And so in the first service, as you may know, wherever you were an hour or so ago, there was a band of heavy thunderstorms coming through. And sure enough, right toward the end of the first service, John Cook, who sits in this room and is on that team and happens to be our church chairman, came in. We had talked before the service, and he said, we need to evacuate the room. And we were able in a wonderful way in about a couple, two or three minutes, John, wouldn't you say? Everybody left this room and they went all to the various places. Downstairs, we've got several basement areas. And uh, we stood there for the next several minutes until we were given the sign that the th thunderstorm trail had passed through. So I just wanted you to know that while we're worshiping, you can focus your mind and your heart on what God's doing. You don't need to worry about the safety of your children, and you don't need to worry if there's a, there's a thunderstorm, a tornado coming, because people are watching out for us. And if we have to, there's places for us to go. Amen? So now where was I? Oh, yeah. So Moses had said, show me your glory. And he'd experienced the power of God many times, but it seems to me that what he's saying is, God... I want to have a powerful personal encounter with you that shows me your glory undeniably. And God said to him, in that very next verse, there's a place near me, verse 21, where you may stand on a rock, and when my glory passes by, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. God was inviting Moses to come on up on the mountain and have that 
powerful glory encounter with him. What's the most powerful encounter you've ever had with God? Really now. And how did it affect you? How are you different as a result of that encounter? As you may know, every one of our worship services, we design them in hopes that you'll have a powerful encounter with God. That somewhere during this service, God will speak into your life personally. That his truth will overwhelm you. That he'll touch you at the point of your need. Really, this isn't just a religious exercise that we're going through here. Are you changed because of one or more significant, authentic encounters with the living God in all of his glory that you've had? Do you remember that John wrote in, in John chapter 1 about Jesus, the Word became flesh. God came here and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. As I was reading this, when God says to Moses, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock as my glory passes by, this thought came to me. If it's true that when you and I trust Jesus Christ to be our Savior, that God places his Holy Spirit within us, then could it be that as you're going about the normal routine of your life, wherever you go, the glory of God is passing by? Because the Spirit of God is within you. You ever have a conversation with someone? And when that person left, you go, wow. It was almost like, like God was here with us as we were talking. That ever happened to you? Or you were in a prayer time with someone, and, and you said, do you sense the presence of God here? Friends, it, it's real. It should be something that you and I have experienced in our lives. It should be more than just words on a page. So how does it happen? Well, it begins with a hunger. Moses was saying, God, I'm hungry to know you. Show me your glory. It starts with a hunger. So may I ask you to look honestly and closely into your own life. How hungry are you really to know God? To know God's word? To have encounters with God? How hungry are you really for God to change you? To do his cleansing work, his healing work, his changing work in you? Hunger drove Moses to go back up that mountain to meet with God. And then I see God's response in chapter 34, verse 1. So the Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke, Moses. Verse 2, Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai and present yourself to me here on the mountain. Could I invite you to own that, that invitation? When I was in business, I admit to you that I had to set an alarm clock just to make sure that I got up in time to make the commute to get into the city and do my business. I didn't want to get caught in the traffic. If I had a really important meeting, I would make sure I set that alarm clock early, really early, until I met somebody who knew God better than me. And I found out that that person got up well before daylight every day and had powerful time with God. And a hunger began to well up inside of me. I haven't set an alarm clock for 20 years. And I don't see past 5 or 5.30 any morning. That's not a boastful statement. That's just a factual statement. Because do you know what I've discovered? If I rush out of my house without having time 
with God, it's not going to be a good day. Because all I have to rely on is me. My strength, my best efforts, my puny little wisdom. But if I've had time in the tent, I'm ready for the day. How about you? Do you remember when God was here in the person of Jesus? Mark tells us in Mark chapter 1, he had a particularly busy day. He'd been healing people and casting out demons and preaching, and people were there till late at night. And finally he laid down, may I suggest, exhausted. But then it tells us that early the next morning, before daybreak, while it was still dark, in fact, it tells us in Mark chapter 1, he went out to a solitary place to meet with the Father. Peter comes out looking for him and says, what are you doing out here? There's a whole lot of people that need you. (laughs) That's what he was doing out there. There was a whole lot of people that needed him. And he was able to say to to Peter, I met with the Father, and here's what we're going to do next. Be ready in the morning. Do you suppose Moses slept very much that night? Tomorrow morning, God has invited me to a meeting on the top of the mountain, just the two of us. I wouldn't have slept very much. Come up the mountain and present yourself to me. What does that mean? How would you respond to to an invitation from God? Come and present yourself to me. Well, that's a standing invitation, isn't it? Because you and I are welcome in his throne room. And may I urge you to make it a personal practice every single morning before you step out of your house that you've had time with God and that you've come prepared for time with Him and you present yourself before Him. You worship. If you've got an iPod, put in those earbuds and listen to some of your favorite worship music. You open up God's Word. You take the digging deeper that I write for you every week and you spend some time expressing your adoration to Him and listening to what He wants to say to you through His Word. It will change your life. Amen? And it will position you for the day that only he knows what's coming at you that day. Verse 5, Then the Lord came down in the cloud, and he stood there with Moses, and he proclaimed his name, Yahweh. In the Hebrew, Y-H-W-H. Translated, Yehovah. The great I am is the way it's translated in English for us in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses said when he was meeting this God for the first time on the mountain with the burning bush. And when the people ask me, what is your name? What should I tell them? You tell them you've met with I am. I am more than you will ever understand. I am more than you will ever need. I am all, the origin of all. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, and maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Oh, Moses knew God as the Creator God, the Eternal God, the Holy God, the Omnipotent God, the Omniscient God, the Omnipresent God. But here... It's as though God is describing some of his personality. He's a loving God, a compassionate God, a gracious God, 
a forgiving God. That must have been news to, to, to Moses' ears that, that were almost too sweet to receive because Moses knew that he and his people lived in a broken, terrible world. There was never any good news in their world. God was saying, I want you to know that yes, I am holy and creator and almighty, but I am also loving and caring and compassionate and forgiving. And I long for relationship. That's why I invite you to come and meet with me every day. And then God said, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He's a just God. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. There are some times in our English translations that, may I suggest, it really doesn't do justice well to the original language, and this is one of them. Does God actually punish children for their father's sins? No. No, there are several scriptures in the Bible that tells us we each stand accountable before God for our own lives. And each of us will stand accountable before God for our own lives. So then what does it mean? It means, and you and I both know, children live in the shadow of their parents. Children carry the burden of their families. And so children who have grown up in broken, dysfunctional families, arguing and fighting or abuse or alcohol, they carry the burden of that. And many of you in this room understand what that is from personal experience to the third and the fourth generation. It's a call, isn't it, for us to look closely at the legacies that we are building because our children will inherit what we have built and passed to them. God is challenging Moses and the people, be careful. As you understand me and all that I am, in all of my majesty, my holiness, and my love, I am also a just God. Be careful. In fact, you see it there in verse 11, obey what I command you. Verse 12, be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in darkness. Verse 13, break down their altars. Verse 14, do not worship any other god. Verse 15, be careful because they'll draw them in they'll draw you into their darkness. I wonder if you would agree, my friends, that darkness is only and always dark. I'm not talking about nighttime. I'm talking about moral darkness. We understand what it looks like, the darkness of a dysfunctional family. We understand what the darkness of a, of a business, a dishonest, no integrity, abusive employee business environment is. We understand what the darkness is of a media that seems to have no respect whatsoever for the people to which it is broadcasting violence and sexuality. We live in a dark world, and darkness is dark, but... Do you remember that Jesus said, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will, what? Not walk in darkness. So, would you agree that light penetrates the darkness? Many lights permeate the darkness. Lots of light pushes back the darkness. So, if the Holy Spirit of God is alive and well in you, you have the light of Jesus Christ in you. And if you're all by yourself in your family, the only person who knows Jesus, you can penetrate the darkness. 
But get two or three of you in your family, and now you can permeate the darkness. Get your whole family, and you can push back the darkness in your neighborhood. Amen? Same thing in your workplace. Same thing in your school or your university. So how are we doing with that? What's the intensity of the darkness where you live or where you work or in your family? And what difference are you making personally? Because you have the light of Jesus Christ within you. Are you at least penetrating? Are you permeating? Are you with others pushing it back? Because darkness is always either spreading or withdrawing. Do you agree with that? Now think about that a minute. Darkness is always either advancing or retreating. One of the reasons I like to get up really early is to watch the advance of a new day. A couple of times this week we had really crystal clear early mornings. Did you see it, any of you who are up early? And in our particular little house, we've got windows on the east and on the west, and so I don't mind telling you, I'm running back and forth about every 15 minutes. Because I love watching the early rays over here, and I run to the west, and it's still pitch black in their stars. Not for long. Fifteen minutes later. And I ask myself the question when I watch that. Is that not the difference that you and I should be making in Lake Geneva and Williams Bay and Delavan and Elkhorn and wherever you live or work? The, the, the composite collective pushing back of the darkness through all of the light represented by those of you who know Jesus Christ should be remarkable should make a huge difference in our area. Do you agree with that? And that's why, after 40 days up there, it tells us at the end of chapter 34 that Moses came down and his face was radiant. He had been in the presence of God for 40 days. Darkness had been pushed back, and now he comes down to push back the darkness among the people. And two things I'd like you to see that he says to the people. That's part of pushing back the darkness. First, chapter 35, verse 1. These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. For six days, work is to be done. But the seventh day shall be your holy day, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. They'd never heard anything like that before. These were seven-day-a-working slaves, seven-day-a-week working slaves. One day in seven, we're supposed to have a day of rest? Yes, but did you notice? A holy day. It doesn't mean you get up in the morning and you stay in your pajamas all day and you lay on the couch eating potato chips watching football all day or watching movies. That's not at all what it's talking about. Have you noticed that God has made your body and mind to need rest regularly every day and then some extended rest fairly frequently? But more than that, have you noticed that he's made your mind to need to have a time to free from the clutter and the pressure of the week. Do you agree with that? Your mind needs to be able to refocus and reprioritize and get things back aligned so you can step back out into the busyness and the demands of your week. Have you noticed that, that your heart needs a, a, a day of refreshing because your heart has been pulled and stretched and hammered by the darkness of the world we live in? Sabbath, therefore, my dear friends, and it's part of the reason that what you and I are experiencing this morning has historically been such an important part of what is called Sabbath. Sabbath includes worship. I slow down. I rest. 
I focus my mind and my heart on you, oh God. I go up the mountain like Moses did and I worship. Do you know we're the only country in the world that tries to do that in an hour? Every other country, they, they don't wear watches in worship that I've ever been in. Am I right, David? Especially in the third world. People have walked for miles, and once they get there, they're so anxious to be with other Christians and worship. Hours go by. Very often they'll have a meal together. It's an entire day set aside, you see, to realign themselves with God, their minds to think like God thinks, their hearts to be cleared of all the junk of the week, to get their hearts pure with God and get their priorities realigned. Sabbath. Huh? Doesn't that sound good? So what's your Sabbath pattern? What does Sabbath look like for you? And have you noticed all the things that try to encroach into your Sabbath so that you hardly have even a little time to be with God? A second thing that he said, do you see it there in the next verse? Verse 4, Moses said to the whole Israelite community, this is what the Lord has commanded. From what you have, take an offering for the Lord. Can't you see the people looking around at each other? Why? God doesn't need our money. Everyone who is willing is to bring to the Lord an offering of gold and silver and bronze. All they had, you may remember, is what they brought out of Egypt. They brought Egypt's bounty with them. And now God is inviting them to bring an offering. Why? Verse 10, all who are skilled among you are to come and make everything the Lord has commanded, the tabernacle with all of its ingredients. God had said that he wanted to come and be among his people. Relationship, closeness. He had said to them, worship needs to be central in your lives and in your marriages and in your families. So build a place where you and I can meet. He called it a tabernacle a place of residence of God among his people. If you've ever been to the Walworth County Fair, at least in the last four or five years, there's a tent that's been put there by Calvary Community Church. It's a tent that is a place where moms can bring their little babies and they can nurse them, uh, they can change their messy diapers. May I apply that to the tabernacle? The tabernacle is designed to be a place where you can come and meet with God. And the mess of your life can be cleaned up in the encounter with God. Huh? Well, we ought to put a sign over this church, the changing place. Yeah. And we ought to be honest enough to say that every one of us, starting with me, as we're walking up the parking lot toward the doors of this place, we ought to be saying, yep, I really need this. Oh, my. And when we walk out, oh, my. I'm ready now to face a new week and to be light in the darkness of my world, because of what happened in there, I met with God. His glory poured out on me. That's what God was asking for here. But the people were just like you and me. Wait a minute. If you need a tabernacle, build it yourself. You're God. You don't need my help. But did you see the little phrase right in the middle of there? Everyone who is willing... Oh, that's a condition of the heart, isn't it? And so this phrase for you, my dear friends, that you see in your notes, and you'll see it on the screen, responds to both of these, the Sabbath and the tabernacle offering, is to be thoughtful. Think it through. Decisive. Make a decision. Yes, I, I will have a Sabbath. I will have time regularly with God. 
Yes, I will bring that which he has given to me offering to advance his kingdom here and around the world from willing hearts overflowing with gratitude in worship to a God who is sovereign over all. Now, you could spend the rest of the week on that phrase right there, which is why I wrote it for you. And I urge you to spend some time this week asking yourself, does every piece of that phrase apply to you? Really? You see, it was an invitation to understand. You're free. You're rescued. Now what's your response to God? It was an invitation to recognize that your life and your bounty is all God's. God's provided it to you. He made you. He's given you life and breath and all of your resources he's given to you. How do you respond to that? And so in verse 20, the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses' presence to think about this for a while. And then, verse 21, everyone who was in fact willing and whose heart moved him came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work on the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, for all of its service and for the sacred garments. All who were willing, men and women alike, came and brought gold and jewelry of all kinds. Verse 24, those presenting an offering of silver or bronze, they brought it as an offering to the Lord. Verse 29, and all the Israelite men and women who were willing brought to the Lord free will offerings. Do you see the who were willing phrase repeated over and over again? It's because God keeps asking us, do a heart check. How is your heart? Overflowing with gratitude or somewhat resentful? You see, this participation with God in the building of this tabernacle, the participation with God in the Sabbath was, his, was in anticipation God is about to do something significant, and he's invited me to be a part of it. When we take our offerings here every time we worship, a fairly sizable portion of it, as you know, goes to the other countries. That's what all these flags are here for. And I wonder if you're at least sitting in this room and you can see a new addition that we've made. Do you see a, a kind of a strange-looking ball or balloon or something hanging there between the Haiti flag and the next flag over? Do you know what that is? Marion Sorensen, come and see me for a minute. I need a microphone. I've got uh, yellow, I think, there, my brother. And it looks to be off, so let me see. There we go. What is that thing hanging there? Well, it's called the inflatable joy balloon, and it's a, it's a tool that anyone can use uh, to explain God's creation and his love for you. Amen for me. And Where did you get the idea? Well, it's really humbling. Last year, I went, uh, I felt I was being called to go to Haiti on a mission trip. Um, and when I was preparing to go, I was... Um, going to be doing the bracelet story, the wordless book story. And uh, I'd done that before some 10 years ago on a mission trip. And my life really needed some reviving. And so I believe that's why God asked me to go. And uh, so as I was preparing to go, God brought this idea to my mind because I was collecting balls and balloons and things that were easy to pack. Uh, to take and to share um, with the children that I would meet. Well, 
as you know, that Haiti trip is coming again, and it's, it's coming up real fast. And with all the busyness of the holidays, I wasn't able to get this idea together. But God would not let it go from me. It would not be gone from me. I could not stop thinking about this balloon. And um, like many others, uh, we need support as we're going out on these big trips. And uh, so I had asked a, uh, for support, and one of my supporters wanted to hear about my trip when I came home. And so we met, and we talked, and we prayed, and... Uh, I told this woman about, about this idea. And all the while before we met, I was praying in my car, God, this is your idea, and I can't do it. I can't do it by myself, so would you please, would you please send someone to help me if this is what you want? And so this lovely woman <laughs> said, well, let me take this idea. I gave her the pieces of material that I had cut, and we prayed and we cried, and it was perfected through many more people that we prayed for. The whole thing was perfected, and then you know what else happened? I got the flu. I got the flu, and one of the things uh, that was in our worship folder that talked all about um, how... Um, God loves us, and uh, the scripture that talks about how he changes us, how he pushes back the darkness, and how we can be, have assurance. All the verses were right there when I was having the flu. <laughs> and so then God inspired to write a story to put together with the balloon. And so then that happened. And it's all him. It's all him. My so sewing machine is... 38 years old, and I have stacks of stuff in my basement that have never been finished. I'm not, I don't know why God would use me, but. So what we've ended up with is what you see there, an inflatable balloon that tells the bracelet story, the gospel story. It's now gone out in about five or six other countries where our short-term teams have gone. And Marion and several other people to whom God has gifted this idea are beginning to spread the good news of Jesus Christ through inflatable balloons, particularly with children in places like Haiti and Honduras and India and the Czech Republic, now even in Cambodia. So we've hung one there to remind us that in your encounter with God, don't be surprised if God breathes into your heart and your mind a fresh idea that could make a big difference in a lot of people's lives. Thank you, Marianne, very, very much. Because that's what he did with her. A glorious work of the Spirit of God accomplishes the purposes of God. Do you see it there in your notes? Involving the people of God, using the resources of God. I urge you to grab a hold of that and celebrate it, my friends, that that includes you if you've trusted Jesus. In closing, just a little story out of the book that we've been reading. Take a ride with me. After a few miles, we turn off the main road, we pass through a gate, and we fall in line behind some pickup trucks, overloaded. 
The trucks ahead of us are filled with furniture and stereo systems and appliances and fishing rods and golf clubs. Higher and higher the road takes us up the hill until we reach a very large parking lot. There, there are drivers unloading the cargo out of their pickup trucks. Curious, you watch a man pick up a, a large flat-screen television, and he walks over and he, to the corner of the lot, and he hurls it over the edge. Now you've got to find out what's going on. So you scramble out of your car, and you go over, and you peer over the precipice. You're looking over a cliff, and at the bottom of the cliff is a giant pit filled with stuff, everything imaginable. Finally, you understand. This is a landfill, a junkyard, the final resting place for every man-made thing. Sooner or later, everything we own will end up here. Christmas and birthday presents, cars and boats and hot tubs and houses and clothes and stereos and barbecues, the treasures that children quarreled about, that friendships were lost over, that honesty in business was sacrificed for, that marriages broke up over. It will all end up here. The author says in parenthesis, I recommend taking a family field trip to a junkyard to help your children understand this powerful lesson. Have you ever seen the bumper sticker that says, He who dies with the most toys wins? Millions of people are living as though that were true. The more accurate saying is this, He who dies with the most toys still dies and never takes his toys with him. When we die, after devoting our lives to acquiring things, we don't win. We lose. We move into eternity, leaving our toys behind, filling junkyards. The bumper sticker couldn't be more wrong. We'll each part with everything. The only question is when. We have no choice but to part with it later. But we do have a choice whether to part with some of it now. We can keep earthly treasures for the moment, and we may derive some temporary enjoyment from them. But if we invest them in God's purposes, we will enjoy eternal treasures that will never be taken away from us. That is what Jim Elliot was talking about years ago when he said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. If you hear those words and you think, oh, he was, he was one of those super spiritual missionary type guys who didn't think about gain, you've missed the whole point. Read it again. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Gain is precisely what Jim Elliot was thinking about. He just wanted the kind of gain that you couldn't lose. He wanted his treasures for all of eternity in God's presence. As Moses came down off that mountain, he looked like what I believe God wants you and me to look like. Radiant. Radiant authentically with who we are because of what Jesus Christ is doing in us and what he means to us. Light in a dark world. Hope in a broken world. Answers in a confused world. Do you agree with that, friends? Help in a desperate world. He came down and he said, now the first thing is let's get our lives in balance. Time with God regularly. 
worship or you'll be overrun by the busyness and the demands of life. And let's understand that all that we have comes from him and he has great purposes that he would like to accomplish in our world and he'd like to use us. But he can't use us if we're living in the darkness or we're sitting on the sidelines watching other people. He can use us only if our hearts are those willing people saying, yes, Lord, let's change this world. So let's talk to him about that. And God, as we hear that rain coming down, we are so grateful. There's not a man or a woman in this room who can make a raindrop. Seems to me that you're looking down at our lake and at Walworth County and you're saying, oh, you folks need some water. Good, clear, clean, fresh water. The crops next year are going to need water and those crops are going to feed starving children in Africa and all over the place. That lake needs some more water. Your front yards need some water. Maybe even more importantly than that, <laughs> the aquifer needs water. You want to turn your faucet on at home and make sure there's water coming out, and the only way there is is if I pr provide it from heaven. Thank you for the rain, God. You know we need more than rain, don't we? We need your change work, God, in our hearts. Because my, oh my, we, we got broken, messed up hearts. And if we're not real careful, our words and our attitudes can hurt other people, even the people that we love. This is a changing place. And you're here. And you're a loving, compassionate, but you're also a just and holy God. So right now, in the quietness of this moment where you're sitting, it's your moment to talk with God. Be ready, he has said to you, and come up and meet with me. Have a conversation with God. If you're courageous enough, tell him that you'd like to see his glory like Moses did, that you'd like to experience his great change work in your life. If he shows you some things in your life that you and he both know aren't right, repent of it, turn away from it. Ask him to help you break the hold of that on your life. Now let's worship him in response. When repentance and rest is yours. 